Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and drink beer. I'm Luke and I'm joined in the bunker by the man with a face made for radio. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Thanks, Luke. And hi, everybody. You know what, Luke? My mom thinks I'm cool. Dude, I think you're cool, too. Well, today we're diving back into the Pacific Ocean in the Battle of Iwo Jima. If you remember from last month, we left the Marines with a large beachhead on the south side of the island. They've crossed the island and they've bisected it, cutting off the southernmost point of the island and the notorious natural fortification called Mount Suribachi. Today, on this podcast, the Marines are going to assault that mountain. They'll squirm up its slopes, they'll fight hand-to-hand, they'll give, and they'll receive death. But first, we're going to do what I know a lot of them would want us to do. What's that, Luke? Take a shower? Because we're not taking a shower together, buddy. Never. No, dude, we're going to crack open a few cold ones. I do love shower beers. (laughs) Me too. All right, tonight we're drinking sake. Now I know we're going to get some emails from purists who say we should only review beers, but I was excited about this drink and I've never had it before. I was reading Helmet for My Pillow and the author, Robert Leckie, Relates how he found a huge jar of sake hidden in an underground bunker on an island. Robert didn't tell a soul he found the sake and proceeded to get blitzed off it. The jar was large, so he had to use his entire body weight to roll backwards onto his back and tip the opening of the jar to his mouth. Needless to say, Lecky highly recommends sake, and we're going to see what he was working with tonight. So, Chris, drinks to you, man. What do you think of sake? Well, let's have a taste. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like it. It's, um, I don't know how to describe the flavor. Um, it, it's not like shooting alcohol, like, like, you know, booze. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's very smooth. It's, a. Uh, it's kind of like, kinda like wine. It's very, very similar to wine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of view this as a wine. It's definitely got no carbonation. I'm getting no carbonation whatsoever. No. And the smell of it, we smelled it before we started recording. It smells kind of like, um. The stores, the restaurants you go to where they cook on the large flat grill in front of you. Japanese steakhouse. The Japanese steakhouse. I kind of get that on the smell. Do you get that? Yeah, yeah, I get that too. I get that, that whole feeling. We should go get Japanese steakhouse after this. <laughs> I think we will. Well, uh, this is my first time ever having sake, and here's how Lecky, the guy I told you about before, described it. Oh, it was good. My palate was not at all sophisticated, yet no more refinement of taste could ever match the sheer exuberance flowing from every mouthful of that sake. It is glorious to drink the wine of the enemy, end quote. And I can say that sake is okay. It tastes, mm, it's like a wine. We're drinking it chilled tonight, not hot. It's not my favorite. I won't buy it again, but if I had just spent seven weeks on a ship with 30,000 men and no women, this would be pretty great. Hell, I've spent 12 years with one woman, and it's still pretty good. I give this three bullets out of five. Oh, man, if we're taking it from Mr. Lecky's point of view, then it's five out of five. <laughs> I'm <laughs> stuck on Iwo Jima, and I, that's the only thing I got to get drunk. Hell, yeah. <laughs> but, um, nah, it's, it's pretty good. It's better than I remember being. I hadn't had it in a long time, mm. but it's real good, and I'm enjoying it. All right, and with that, let's attack Mount Suribachi in one of the bloodiest battles in United States military history. I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moves my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence, primordial love, and ultimate intellect. Only those elements time cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. 
This is a dreadful, desolate, ugly island. The dirt is sort of a grayish, yellowish, volcanic ash. Very soft and crumbly. And when you dig a foxhole, the sides keep coming in on you. There is very little vegetation because practically nothing grows here. It has to struggle. It has too great a struggle with a volcanic ash. These mysteries I read cut into stone above a gate, and turning I said, Master, what is the meaning of this harsh inscription? And he then, as initiate and novice, here must you put by all division of spirit and gather your soul against all cowardice. This is the place I told you to expect. Here you shall pass among the fallen people, souls who have lost the good of intellect. Suddenly there's tremendous noise like nothing I've ever heard before, before or since, you know, just the most god-awful noise you can imagine. And I turn around and I see this hillside where the cave was, you know, just rising up in the air, just going straight up, you know, and I thought, my God, you know, rocks and boulders, big boulders. So then it starts to fall, you know, it goes out like a mushroom cloud and begins to fall. And so I... I hit the deck, there's nothing else to do, there's no place to hide, I just hit the deck, you know, and all this stuff began to land on my back, you know, and I, I thought, my God, I'm being buried here, so I, <laughs> some of it hurt, you know, but I was lucky again, because if I'd been a few feet farther out, the biggest rocks would have hit me, they, that explosion killed quite a few people, were killed by the size of the biggest rocks, you know, we had to dig them out. We just heard excerpts from Dante's Inferno, the famous poem where Dante walks through hell. And I think it's more appropriate for this battle than any other I've read about in a long time. Now, I've read a lot of, about a lot of battles, and consistently, the men on the ground on both sides compared Iwo Jima to a battle through hell. I've seen a lot of pictures of the battlefield, and the place looks like a hell. We'll post them to the website. The whole time I was reading about this battle, I kept thinking of Dante's Inferno. Now, I read the Inferno in the back of my chemistry class in high school, and it's haunted me ever since. Dante was a master of his art. His words affect us even today, hundreds of years later. And I saw hell through the pen of Dante. And I can tell you, I saw hell through the stories of the Marines and the Japanese soldiers I'm going to tell you about today. Now, I'm not Dante, but the men who fought in this battle deserve a poet like Dante. They, and you, are stuck with us here at Battlecast. And I was wondering how I would recap what happened in the last episode when I came across this quote from John Keegan that perfectly encapsulates what has happened so far in this battle. Here it is, quote, Iwo Jima was heavily gunned and garrisoned, honeycombed with tunnels, its bedrock of basalt covered with a deep layer of volcanic dust. The island subjected the Marines to their worst landing experience in the war. Amtrak's lost traction and ditched on the beaches to be destroyed by salvos from close-range artillery, which three days of battleship bombardment had not destroyed. Riflemen dug trenches, which collapsed as soon as they were deep enough to provide cover. The wounded were wounded again as they lay out on the beaches awaiting evacuation. Robert Sherrod, the correspondent who had been with the Marines throughout the war, thought it was the worst battle he had ever seen. Men died, he said, with the greatest possible violence. On the first day alone, the Marines had split the Japanese, cutting off the pinnacle of the island which housed the terrible and foreboding natural fortress of Mount Suribachi. End quote. The Marines who gazed at Mount Suribachi's formidable natural walls 
almost suspected that God wanted the Japanese to win. He had given them such a strong natural fortress, and the Marines are going to have to take it. Now I want to tell you about Mount Suribachi. First off, the mountain and the end of the island are synonymous. Why is that important? Because the Marines can't surround it on land, the mountain is surrounded on three sides by the ocean. Not only that, but it is 556 feet tall and commands the entire island. It's the high ground, and from there, the Japanese are directing massive fire at the Marines on the beaches in the airfield. The only way to take it is by frontal assault. Precisely down the firing lanes, the superb Japanese commander, General Kurabayashi, has prepared for them in precise detail, and I'm going to detail it for you. On the mountain, there are 2,000 Japanese defenders clinging to it, ready to die for the sun god. They are in literally hundreds of fortified pillboxes, caves, and strong points. Facing these warriors of Shinto are three marine assault battalions. Their first task is clearing the base of the mountain. Already, on the level ground around the base of the mountain, it was a bloodbath freak show. On February 20th, the Devil Show began. The Marines, using heavy tank support, tried to blast their way around the base of the mountain. They advanced 175 yards, not even two football fields. In this one day, the Americans lost 29 killed and 123 wounded. I might as well point out that no one knows the day-to-day figures for the Japanese wounded and casualties, especially towards the end of the battle. The Marines hadn't achieved their objective. Much of the mountain's base was still in Japanese hands. On February 21st, the Marines dove headfirst back into the meat grinder, attacking the Japanese strong point by strong point. Now, I can't stress the advantage any intelligent defending commander will have in a battle like this. Kurabayashi knows exactly where the Americans are going to attack. The island is so small, there's only one way the Marines can attack his positions. Accordingly, each of these strong points had excellent fields of fire and mutual support from the strong points nearby. The Marines are assaulting a masterwork of death, a rubrics cube of pain created by Kurabayashi. David Severance with the 3rd Parachute Battalion describes the morning of the 21st, quote, In the morning, the plan was to have tanks supporting our attack at 8 a.m., but the tanks weren't rearmed or refueled, so we delayed until 8.15, then 8.25, and then 8.30. Still, the tanks weren't ready, so the commander said, Go in without tanks, which we did. It was a big rush around an open area. We were charging downhill into fortified pillboxes and bunkers that stretched all the way across the base of Suribachi. The only cover we had were shell holes and bomb craters. We had to move in with fire support and flamethrowers. We made good headway, but we had a lot of casualties. The destroyer escorts fired all night on the mountain. Then the Navy came in and started dropping 100-pound bombs on us. I got on the regimental phone and yelled, Red Wing 6! This is Bayonet Easy 6! Friendly planes are bombing our position! I repeat, friendly planes are bombing our position! There was a silence, and then the communications operator told me I wasn't authorized to come up on the damn frequency. I went apocalyptic with anger. Finally, my battalion commander was able to stop the planes from bombing us. We didn't take any casualties from the bombs, thank God. End quote. Chris, what would you say if I was your commanding officer and I told you to attack heavily entrenched Japanese positions at the base of a mountain with no tank support? Well, it's probably one of the reasons I never actually joined the military, even though I flirted with it for a while. I would probably look at you and be like, that dumb. <laughs> how about, how about, do you need help putting bullets in the tank? I, 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 I can hold the gas tank. 
<laughs> well, that's why these stories matter so much, because these men did the seemingly impossible. Now, I want to tell you a story about Charles Lindbergh. He was with the 2nd Raider Battalion, who attacked Mount Suribachi. He Charles did, Lindbergh? No, definitely not the Charles Lindbergh. Not the Charles he just has the same name. Same name. Yeah. He attacked Mount Suribachi, and he describes Iwo Jima as a hell on earth. These are his words, quote, Iwo Jima was a massacre. I never expected anything like it. People were dying left and right. Japanese were hidden in caves and in bunkers. You had to route them out. I was a squad leader for an assault squad. We had demolitions, bazookas, flamethrowers. We called it bunker busting. I was the flamethrower operator. It was hazardous, but I liked it. Someone told me that I was crazy as hell, but I didn't give a damn. It took us days to get to the base of the mountain. We'd sneak up close to a strong point, get an opening, and let them have it. It was an awful damn sight to burn them alive. You fire burst. A burst is all it takes. If you fired the flamethrower all at once, the tank of napalm would last only six seconds. We could hear the screams. On a daily basis, I saw the after effects, which were grisly as hell. You pull all the oxygen out of a cave when you shot the flame. They suffocate in there. I know I burned out a bunker at the base of Suribachi, and the smell of burnt flesh was lingering in the air, and someone said, They never had more pleasant smell than burnt bodies. At that point, I didn't have any feelings. You'd burn them because they'd do it to you. They tortured some of our men in Guadalcanal. I was just numb. Just numb to it all. End quote. You always wonder, how do they choose the guy for the flamethrower guy? <laughs> I don't you have to already be dead in the eyes, or they put the not the maybe Mr. Lindbergh, maybe not be the smartest one. It's like, well, he's the flamethrower guy. Send him in there. I mean, you're carrying combustible material, a large tank of combustible materials onto the battlefield. Well, he said he liked it. He said he enjoyed it. Yeah. I think a lot of times people volunteer for it. I guess. Uh, not me. <laughs> not you. It looks really cool. And you play video games where you get to have the flamethrower. Super cool. Real life? No. 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 <laughs> I wouldn't want it on my back. I think I would be just a straight rifleman. To be All right, not nah, bro. You go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> you go up front. Well, I mean, that's the individual's personality. Some people do enjoy it. That is true. All right. Well, here is how Private First Class Donald Rule from the middle of nowhere in Montana found his first assault on the mountain. Quote, By 11 o'clock, he had worked to within a few yards of Suribachi's base when Rule spotted a camouflage bunker and dove for cover. He raised his head above the boulder to get a better view and heard a sputtering hiss. Son of a... Watch out! Grenade! There's a grenade! Rule yelled to Private Hansen as the grenade landed six feet away. He flung himself on the missile, his body taking the full impact of the explosion. In the only three days of combat he would ever see, Rule had earned the Medal of Honor and sacrificed his life to save his friends. Oh man, that guy's a hero. I guess I guess you have to be really feeling the adrenaline and just not even thinking about it, just to dive on a grenade like that. It's, I, I think it's so fast you can't make a real decision. It's not a conscious decision. It's not a conscious decision, but in that moment he made the decision. Just um, I'm taking one for the team. It's brutal. I, I was talking to a cop friend, and he says that they train so much with guns that you get a thing called muscle memory. Yeah. And I mean, I know they don't train to dive on bombs, but I think it's almost like a muscle memory re- response. You know what I mean? To you know, do that, yeah, you're 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 in this conflict to win and to and to sacrifice your life. All the training that a lot of people will just react that way. I, I, Probably I not even not, the consequences. Not even thinking about exactly. It. I, I think it's just an instantaneous thing. But too. Either way, very brave, very, very brave. brave man. All right, well, let's get back to the men assaulting Mount Suribachi's base. Here's how Bill Ross describes the hornet-like response to the Marines' advance from Suribachi's Japanese nest machine gun nest. 
Quote, From a hundred different positions on the slopes of Surabachi, barking machine guns, screaming artillery, and shrieking mortars seemed to be coming simultaneously down, mixing with the cries of, Medic! Medic! Genghis Khan Wells and four Marines hugged the sides of a shell hole in front of another bunker waiting for the mortars to lift. One slammed it to the crater, and all were wounded in the blast. The lieutenant was groggy, bleeding profusely, but refused to leave the scene. Corporal Charles Lindbergh saw what was happening as Wells and the other wounded crawled behind the pillbox, alive with machine gun fire. With his flamethrower, he turned the enemy position into a roaring furnace. Two more pillboxes in a bunker were yards away. It took two minutes to flame them and their defenders into dust. End quote. Thomas the Tiger personally found and personally led three tanks in an assault against several pillboxes and bunkers at Mount Suribachi. Because the drivers of the tanks couldn't see, Thomas physically led them in the assault, and the tanks followed him. The heavily reinforced Japanese positions were silenced in a furious firefight that cleared the way for the rest of the battalion to break through to the base of Suribachi. Thomas received the Navy Cross for his actions. Still, the Japanese mortars and artillery from the mountain slopes raked the attacking Marines with withering fire. At the end of the second day of the attack on Suribachi, the Marines had advanced about 2,000 yards and were halfway around the base of Suribachi. The night was fairly peaceful. The men lolled in the mud around Suribachi. Sometimes they would talk to pass the time. Some caught snatches of sleep. They might even talk until suddenly someone noticed that people who had been talking simply stopped. Hey Jim, wake up you pervert! One private called to his friend. No response. Jim, come on, wake up! His friend made his way to Jim's foxhole. Infiltration! They're here! Jim would never answer again. A Japanese infiltrator had silently, silently slit his throat and disappeared back into the night. Imagine trying to rest at night ten yards from a man who not only had the will, but had the skill to do that to you. That night, on the morning of February 22nd, the Japanese began a well-organized infiltration raid into the American positions. Mortars wrecked the Japanese attack after the alarm was sounded. More than 60 Japanese were killed in the resultant 30-minute firefight. Oh, Chris, I gotta ask, man. Do you think you could get some rest when you see your friend that's just been had his throat slit by an invisible soldier? You can't well, even I mean, see. Like, you didn't even know he was there. I mean, they've been they've been in combat for how long at this point? About three days. About three days. So in con, uh, I I don't know. I don't know how. Long, I think I've gone close to like thirty six hours without sleep before. Yeah, but seventy two hours longer in heavy stress combat situation. Oh, oh, that'd be brutal. And then just knowing. Knowing that you get your throat slipped by some some guy creeping up on you, <laughs> ninja guy, I know it's <laughs> crazy. All right, so February twenty second greeted the fighting men of both armies with a torrent of cold rain that soaked the men to their skin and coagulated the volcanic ash to clog and jam weapons. It turned the unique soil of the volcanic island into a kind of paste. That played hell on all their weapons. It was a well, nightmare. Volcanic ash is what the Romans used to make concrete originally. I didn't know that. Yeah, they used lime and volcanic ash. And all right, so so these men's weapons are turning into concrete around their hands, <laughs> and they have to f- salt a mountain. 
while that's going on. Now, the weather was literally killing men by disabling those weapons. And that morning, soaked Marines assaulted the Japanese strong points at the base of Suribachi with rifles, grenades, flamethrowers in their bare hands. It was slow and dangerous work, but they were making progress. An 11-man patrol was able to work up the slope a little without getting massacred. During this whole time, airstrikes and naval gunfire is decimating Mount Suribachi. The entire concentrated industrial might of North America was aiming its sights on the little mountain of Suribachi. And let's suppose you are a Japanese soldier in an impregnable position. Imagine the psychological torture of being constantly bombarded, of seeing your friends blown to bits and mangled a few yards away below you, of peeking from your cave and seeing the Americans constantly advancing, constantly landing men and material. Imagine watching as they they burned out a pillbox with a flamethrower mounted to a tank, and you know you are next. You know there is nothing you can do. The knife starts to look like a way out, and you start to envy Socrates for easy death. Oh, to have a cup of hemlock. To close those eyes and leave these treacherous slopes. Oh, to greet Hamlet at the undiscovered country. And on the end of the third day of the assault on Suribachi, Japanese resistance was noticeably lighter, though still fierce. Still, the base of Suribachi had not been taken. In three days of fighting at the Battle of Iwo Jima, the Marines had lost 4,574 men killed and wounded. The 4th Division alone had lost 2,517 men on the beaches alone. The 5th Division, charged with conquering Mount Suribachi and cracking Kurabayashi's puzzle of death had lost 2,057 men. Thankfully, there were no Japanese infiltrators that night. On February 23, 1945, Chandler Johnson commanded 24-year-old First Lieutenant Harold Screer to make a path up the mountain. His orders were simple. Take the platoon up the hill and put this on top. Jansen handed Screer a small American flag measuring 54 by 28 inches. Other scouts were already making their way up the sides of the mountain, carving a path of destruction to the top. Screer just might be able to make it to the summit. Screer led a patrol of 40 men with one attachment, Lewis Lowry, a photographer for Leatherneck, the Marine Corps magazine. They moved up the slope in single file, and they met surprisingly little resistance as they made their way up the cliffs. Eyewitnesses described the mountain as an inverse cemetery, as if a cemetery had disgorged all of its dead at once. Smashed and broken Japanese bodies littered the ground. Historian Bill Ross takes up the story. Quote, Screer crested the summit first and called a halt. In 30 minutes, the patrol had climbed half a thousand feet up what had been a death-dealing mountain just four days before. Not a shot had been fired. Well, where the hell are the Japs? Screer muttered as he signaled the rest of his men to follow. The men felt like they were in the eye of a hurricane. It was all too quiet, an eerie, frightening, almost deathly stillness. Private Keller saw the first enemy. The nip started to climb out of a deep hole with his back to me, he said. I fired three times from the hip and he dropped out of sight. The rifle fire triggered an immediate torrent of grenades from caves and holes. The Marines returned fire and overwhelmed the Japanese. During the melee, two soldiers found a seven-foot length of iron pipe and they attached the American flag to it. It was 10.31 a.m., February 23, 1945, end quote. The beaches and the ships surrounding the island erupted in cheers. There goes the flag! shouted the Marines at the base of Surabayachi. Louis Lowry took the men's picture as they raised the flag. Here's how an eyewitness described the flag raising. Quote, 
we, we tied the flag to a long pipe and we brought it to the highest spot we could and we raised it. Then everything broke loose down below the troops. They, they all started cheering and the ships blew their whistles and horns. It's something you never forget. It was one of the most exciting points in my life. As this was happening, the Japanese started coming out of their caves up there and we had to move in against them. The first cave, we kept them inside. It had two ends to it. I took my flamethrower and went to the other side and threw a flame in. We were waiting for them to come out, but nobody came, so we sealed the cave with explosives. Later, we dug it open, and there were dozens of dead bodies in there. That was just one cave. There were a lot more caves at the top of that mountain. End quote. Wow, dude. You know, them raising that flag reminds me of that iconic picture of the Red Army raising the uh, Red Army's uh, flag of the Soviet Union in Berlin. I always think of them blowing up the uh, Nazi crest. I think it's over the Reichstag. Oh, yeah. That's that's what that's my indelible image. That's what you get from right. it? Yeah. But so, now, have you ever been to Washington? And Have you ever seen the monument in Washington? I've been to Washington. I never flag. saw that monument. Oh, it's great. It, it's, I haven't been in uh, 15 years, but uh, it's a... It's a sight to see. I bet. It sounds pretty awesome. But I think that's kind of like, for the Pacific War, that's the same iconic picture, you know? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. kind of like the Red Army in Berlin conquering in uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly, from nowhere, a Japanese leapt from a cave and opened fire on the men. He missed by a miracle. The Marines cut the Japanese soldier down in a tidal wave of bullets. The body was grasped by its feet and dragged into the cave. An officer sprang from the entrance, snarling and swinging a broken samurai sword. Howard Snyder squeezed his Colt 45's trigger. It misfired. A rifle burst from another Marine saved his life. The rest of the patrol began to spray any cave opening it or hole they found with grenades, flamethrowers, and demolition blasts, whether they saw someone inside or not. As if springing from the earth itself, another group of Japanese came out of a cave. Here's how one veteran described the event. Quote, they pulled a banzai charge on us. I shot one of the first ones out of the cave and took his head off. Inside his helmet was a flag. He was a kid, very young. It was heroic coming out of there. I cry when I think about it. His face is in my eyes. I see him when I go to sleep at night. End quote. The battle for the summit of the mountain was over. The Japanese defenders were all dead or buried alive. Within half an hour, the summit was already serving the Americans as it had the Japanese as an observation post commanding the entire island. Later that day, Sergeant Thomas inspected the cave where the last attack on the summit had come. It was nearly 150 yards deep inside the mountain. In it, they found more than 150 dead Japanese. Most died by holding hand grenades to their stomachs and pulling the pin. The Americans blew the cave entrance to bury the dead men and stemmed the stench emanating from the cave. That afternoon, Sergeant William Gnost had found a larger American flag on a ship and begged it off the ship's captain. He made his way to the top with photographer Joe Rosenthal. The new flag was immediately lashed to a longer length of pipe, and six Marines had a hard time shoving it into the rubble. It was then that Joe Rosenthal took the picture that comes once in a lifetime. He took the iconic picture of Marines raising the American flag that had been recreated, that has been recreated in countless paintings, statues, and stamps across the North American continent. The picture won the 1945 Pulitzer Prize and was the official symbol of the Seventh War Bond Drive, which raised over $220 million. But what happened to the 40 men who had crested the summit, raised the flag, and battled the Japanese into submission? What about them? Of those 40, only four of them made it to the end of the battle 
The others were killed or wounded. Only one in ten made it out without getting wounded. For the Japanese, the odds were much, much worse. On February 23rd, five days after the Marine landings, the bottom half of the island, including Mount Suribachi, was completely in American hands. Tens of thousands of men had died for a few hundred yards of real estate. One would have thought the Japanese were defending the Fountain of Youth or the Virgin Mary. They fought with such dedication and devotion, dying at their post to the last man. Only those too severely wounded to take their own lives surrendered to the, surrendered to the Americans. Only six Japanese survived the onslaught out of 2,000. Chris, can you believe the assault on Mount Suribachi? Do you think you could do it? Assaulted or <laughs> die in one of those holes like the Japanese did? Assaulted. Oh. I assume I could probably assault it. I mean, you're in that tidal wave of men. You don't really have a choice. I mean, you, you don't know. really have a choice at that point. I mean, do I get a choice if I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to go back to the ship, guys? Yeah, you don't get a choice. I yeah. mean, you yeah. just have to do it. You just have to do it. It has to be done. There's a, there's enough momentum and force and just everything propelling you up that mountain, <laughs> or to, to just do things that aren't natural. I know it's just it, it's crazy and it's an amazing story. I mean that's even I mean but it's even more nuts for the Japanese and the holes and, and oh. fighting to the last man and being shelled for three months. We're not talking about that. They're being shelled and bombed and Mount Suribachi is like a signpost. Come bomb me because yeah. it's the high ground and it's they're completely cut off from everything. You're 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 dying there. You know that's <laughs> there's, no, like, there's no way you can win. You're just dying there. Like there's nothing. Like any of those thinking if they just think about it for a minute. Like we're completely surrounded by the Americans. And they're all they're doing is bombing us and disgorging and, and disgorging supplies and men and just the might of an entire nation coming just dropping on your head. A nightmare. And all you have is a sword, a little bit of sake, and whatever arms and munition they stack that place with. For you ladies out there, uh, the Japanese soldier. I saw an interview with a Japanese soldier who was here at Iwo Jima and survived, and he said the thing they thought about most was women. And, you know, through hard times in my life, I can tell you that the thought of a beautiful woman has helped me get through it. So that's a power you ladies have. Now I want to talk about the hundreds of thousands of men on the ships surrounding Iwo Jima. They have total control of the seas, and they think they have total control of the air, but they're wrong. February 22nd, 50 Japanese Ziki fighters and Betty bombers left Katori Naval Air Base to die for the Emperor. They carried only enough fuel for 20 minutes over their targets. They never intended to go back to Japan. These were the notorious kamikaze. Their mission was to purposely crash their planes loaded with explosives into American ships and sink them. Think about the kamikaze. What do you think it was like to be one? Well, we know. One kamikaze survived. His name is Ryuji Nagasuka, and he tells us about the training in his book, I Was a Kamikaze. The men were trained to skim the waves so as to avoid radar detection. They were trained never to close their eyes as they crashed. Instinctively, if you fly a plane into a ship, you close your eyes. <laughs> That's true. That's part of their training. Uh, I, would, I would think so. <laughs> his commanding officer told Nagasuka, quote, you must never close your eyes. If you do, you will miss your target. You must avoid throwing your life away in vain. Uh, quote. Excuse me, sir. Have you ever actually flown a plane into a, into a ship? Just did, Do you know what happened? They did tests. They actually flew planes into um, things that they would survive. Oh, yeah? The gliders, cheap yeah. planes. That's, they a tested. Big, that's a big pillow. <laughs> yeah, so they knew. It's kamikaze. Divine win? 
Yeah, kamikaze means divine wind. Uh, we talked about the origins of the term in the last show. There was That's a group right. of um, samurai who refused westernization. And it was also an older group before that that they hearkened back to. Mm. Uh, what it comes from, when you uh, consult the will of the gods, you lay a piece of paper in a Shinto temple, and the wind blows the paper, and the gods tell you what to do. So you mm. ask permission from the gods. They blow the paper a certain way and it tells you if you should go Does the paper it. shut its eyes? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think the paper <laughs> shuts its eyes. Well, all right. So the day before the attack, Nagasuka was given his orders. Here's how he describes what he thought would be the last night on the planet. Now he did survive, but he didn't know that. And as we listen to this quote, put yourself in his shoes. What would you do on your last night on earth? Chris, what would you do? Uh, what we're doing right now, good buddy. <laughs> well, you really drink are. beer and hang out with you. Uh, you know, I love you, man. We really are best friends. Well, here's what he did. Let's see what he did. Quote: I cut a lot from my hair and settled down to write my family. It was hard to find words to express something that I felt so profoundly. I made vain efforts at it. Mem- memories of my childhood and adolescence crowded in upon me. Mother taking care of me when I fell off my bike. Walks with the whole family, seaside holidays, my mother giving my friends a warm welcome, my father's passion for sculpture, my beautiful sisters serving me tea at midnight on the eve of my examinations, trying to help me. It was endless recollections. I took refuge in the pleasure of the past. Nine precious hours of my life slipped by in this way. Finally, my pen began to move on the page I wrote to my family. My dear parents... I shall depart this life at 700 hours on the 22nd of September. My whole being is permeated by your tremendous affection down to the last tiny hair, and it is this which is hard to accept, the thought that, with my disappearance, this tenderness will also disappear. But patriotic duty demands it. I sincerely beg your pardon for not carrying out my filial duties to the very end. Please remember me to all those who have shown me love. My dear sisters, farewell. Our parents no longer have a son. It must therefore be your task to give them every loving care during their lifetime. Always be kind and gracious, worthy of Japanese womanhood. I signed my name on the bottom. It was the last words I thought I would ever write. As I lay in bed, my heart almost burst with anguish. Fear comes promptly, instantaneously. And during the night, I had lain frozen and dumb with terror in my bed. Yet even this fear of death became dull with time. I started to feel... Reasonably calm, at 4.30 in the morning, we awoke and we ate our meager breakfast. It was soup, dried fish, and egg. I still had 80 minutes before takeoff. It was 4,800 seconds. Now I was counting time in seconds, for I had the illogical feeling that 4,800 seconds were longer than 80 minutes. At 5.30, the suicide pilots lined up in front of two rickety tables covered with white cloth on which were set out small cups and a bottle of sake. The flight lieutenant poured us each a little sake. Now, said our commandment in ringing tones, I have nothing more to ask of you but die heroically for your country. I wish you success in this mission. Let us salute in the direction of the Imperial Palace. We drank our sake, saluted and bowed low to the north. I looked at the wild flowers at my feet and said to myself, They still have the right to live, whereas I shall be dead in two or three hours. Why? Why? My life will have been more fleeting than a blade of grass. Our commander ordered us to form a circle around us, and the ground crew and school children sang us a solemn death song. 
After the battle, our corpses will be strewn on the green mountain slopes. Our corpses will rest at the bottom of the sea. We shall give our lives for his majesty. We shall die without regrets. Before we got into our cockpits, I tried to recall the faces of my mother and sisters, but I couldn't. My mind was all a jumble. My seat is covered with brilliant flowers. The schoolboys, with tears in their eyes, must have put them as a farewell gift. I'm going to die in the flower of my youth. My plane is my coffin. On the way, I feel a profound and deep attachment to life surging up anew within me, lacerating my heart. As death approaches closer and closer, I long to cry out, Why? Why must I die when my fellow students are allowed to live? From the cockpit windscreen, there is no answer, and I realize there is no solution. Man is too weak to accept an accomplished fact without regret. After my parents die, all memory of me will disappear. The being known as Ruiji Nagasuka will be totally wiped out, completely and utterly. End quote. Nagasuka took off with his squadron to fly his plane into an American ship. Now, he's not taking part in the Battle of Iwo Jima, but his experience is one of the only examples of a surviving kamikaze we have. So he's going to attack another American ship. But fortunately for him, they could not find the ship, and they had to return to base. Here is how his commanding officer responded to their return. Quote, You had not been able to prepare yourself. This is proved by your cowardly return on the pretext of bad weather conditions. You've ruined everything. Your comrades who refused to return and died at sea were imbued with ardent military spirit. But you remain students. You have dishonored our squadron. I am ashamed of you. You have wasted our last remaining fuel. Because of your cowardice, you will be reformed into an infantry battalion. Why didn't you die like heroes? End quote. Chris, what do you say to that, man? I mean, it's just indicative of, the, I mean, the last gasp of an empire. You know, they're they're throwing human waves attacks at Amer- at American ships. That if you do any kind of cost analysis on it, you're just like we're wasting pilots that we could use to pilot planes. Even on a fuel, you're wasting soldiers to throw back the Americans in the hope that you've got enough of them to sink enough ships. No, if if you take down a ship, though, I mean, you're taking down thousands of soldiers. If you get yeah, but ship. it's not taking into account America's industrial might at this point that they're just producing doubt that, it's just, that your wave of pilots and, and lives is a lot smaller than the Americans' ability to bin, build ships, send troops, and more supplies. That's true, but you're th- you're not thinking of the Japanese strategy. It's not to win. It's to show them the extremes that their culture and their empire is willing to go to to protect the fatherland. Yeah. By showing the Americans they're willing to engage in kamikaze attacks, think of the dread Marines had that thought they were going to assault Japan. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, all those people that you know, the people that stand on the side that we shouldn't have dropped the bomb on uh, the bomb on Nagasaki or Hiroshima. This is just once again you have to put yourself in the place of what the American government. Um, what is this? Forty four or forty five? It's forty five now. Forty five is this? So Roosevelt's dead. Is Truman Truman's president at this point? Um. It's 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 right around. It's very close to that time, very that very close to that time frame where Roosevelt dies, Truman takes over, and he's just, the American government. I mean, it just it, it comes down to that simple point of these people are willing to do this. So that means how are you going to send more troops in to die when you and you have this weapon sitting over here that could possibly end the war? You I have to do it. I didn't want to get into this in this show because I do think the nuclear yeah, just for a minute. The nuclear, the atom, the atom bomb was a horrible tragedy. I'm not trying to take away from that, 
but I've read a lot about this, and I really think that it saved Japanese lives and it saved American lives. I know it's hard and it sounds callous to say that, but if you read what the leadership of Japan were writing before and saying to each other before that bomb was dropped, they were they were planning on resisting to the bitter end on the island with massive, massive casualties. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I believe it saved lives. What do you think, Chris? Oh, yeah, I, I, that's what I believe. I mean, uh, I don't know who said it, but there's that line you always see, all wars are tragedies. Yeah, no, and, I don't know who said And from the American standpoint, we didn't start it. And if the American public found out later you had this weapon that could have ended the war and you lost, you know, uh, estimates were up to a million casualties with uh, like, over a million, like a hundred thousand actual dead. Yeah. And and the American public found out you had a weapon that maybe could have ended the war without a hundred thousand dead and another million wounded. And that doesn't include the dead Japanese. Which that, would that, have been. We're not even talking about the dead on the other side and the, and the, and the, greater destruction we would have wreaked on their country yeah. using flamethrowers and napalm and bombs and you know exactly. they're, they're still you know over in europe and vietnam you still hear stories of farmers digging these things up and dying yeah and years later from all the bombs and everything that were dropped saturation so as tragic and as horrible that america had to do that you know it was it was a it, it saved was a more lives. It saved more lives in the end. Yeah, in my opinion. In my I'm opinion, sure too. And I'm sure there's other people who are going to get the hate yeah. emails coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Look, no one knows for sure. I will concede that. But let's get back to it, okay? Well, now let's talk about the 50 Japanese planes who did attack the Americans at Iwo Jima. The first thing you need to know is they are totally not supporting the Japanese soldiers on the ground on the island. They're on their own. They are attacking the American ships because they are a better target. The attack began around 1 o'clock, 20 minutes before the Japanese planes attacked. Central intelligence warned the American ships that a squadron of enemy fighters were approaching. 20 minutes later, an excited voice yelled spasmodically into the radio circuit, We got two bogeys! Two bogeys! Anti-aircraft defense guns cut down the attacking Japanese Ziki fighters. Minutes later, six Japanese planes broke through the clouds, streaking towards the ships at full throttle, aimed straight at the deck of the Saratoga, an aircraft carrier. Four missed their target, but the other two exploded against the ship's sides in comets of flame and shell fragments. The blast smashed through the hull, and the blast wave ignited the fuel storage tanks, which in turn ignited the ammunition stores. The men on the Saratoga were standing on a flaming wreck, belching their own ammunition at them through the floor. Damage control teams struggled to halt the spread of destruction. It took 45 minutes to regain control of the fires. The teams had saved the ship. Just then, another kamikaze wave burst through the anti-aircraft shells. Four planes missed the ship and died for their emperor in the ocean, but one, the fifth, didn't miss. Blazing and twisting like a corkscrew, it pancaked across the flight deck and plunged in a ball of fire into the water. Still, the Saratoga held on. 123 men had died and another 192 were wounded in the three-hour air-naval battle. But the battle wasn't over. A lone bomber appeared out of nowhere and plowed into the Bismarck Sea's hull. It struck a midship, and it exploded a hundred-pound bombs, loosing four torpedoes that detonated like volcanoes. Planes on the flight deck were loaded with gasoline, ammunition, and bombs, and they exploded like dominoes. Boom! Boom! One after another in a giant chain reaction, dealing flaming shrapnel across the Bismarck Sea. At the same time, the weather had turned terrible. 
A twenty-knot gale blew sleet and snow into the men's faces trying to save the Bismarck Sea from sinking. It was all too much. The ocean itself conspired against them, seeming to will the death of the defenders. Captain John Pratt gave the final order, Abandon ship. The men who could dove over the side and into the freezing death water. Just then, a gigantic blast lifted the carrier's stern out of the water. Then the ship sank to the bottom. 218 men sank wither. Three more American ships were hit by the kamikazes. The 50 Japanese pilots had managed to kill or wound 717 sailors. If we include casualties for the previous week, the Japanese had inflicted 1,126 casualties on the American Navy. Chris, what do you think of the naval battle? Oh, I mean, that's... Uh, that's... Uh, that's just insane. I mean, you know, that once again we go back to the kamikazes, just going in, these guys flying a plane into a ship hoping to sink it, and and they get one, right? Oh yeah, they, they sank one and they, they heavily one, destroyed they other ones. Saratoga, yeah. But we were talking about that cost analysis, and you were saying it wasn't worth it. I think we just proved it was worth it because uh, fifty but, men versus seven hundred and seventeen wounded and. Um, killed Americans. But that's that that's one guy that does it, but then you have all the other guys that missed, got shot down, didn't come back, did flew out into the wild blue yonder and didn't come back. And I mean, I don't know how many of those guys are skilled pilots, but they can't go do battle with the enemy, learn new tactics, come back and train more pilots to go out there. So you start losing your cadre of, of, of trained personnel that's good at their jobs. That's true, but you took out you severely hampered and probably took out of action an aircraft carrier. Mm. You sank another American ship. You've wounded and you've killed hundreds of men to your losses. And you've dealt a psychological blow to the enemy, knowing that you're capable of doing this. Yeah, I mean, you dealt a psychological blow. But this this is also, we have to remember, this is in the 1940s. There's no ma- media coverage. Is highly, it's, highly contro- it's not controlled by the American government and the American military. But they do a lot more editing of what comes back, yeah. and what information comes back, and that when it's report and when, when things like tragedies like this are reported, they're sensationalized to the point where it's not looked as like why are we doing this? It's like look at what these people are doing. This is why we have to do this. <laughs> well, let's get back to it. Now that the Battle of Suribachi is over, the Americans have the high ground, but we haven't talked about the main Japanese line of defense. The high ground in the center of of the island. Now, it's not as high as Suribachi, but it's still a very strong point. And on that point, there are over 20,000 Japanese soldiers steeped in the coat of the samurai waiting for the marines. The battle for Mount Suribachi is over. The battle for the sea surrounding the island is over. The battle for Iwo Jima is just beginning. But that's another podcast. Wait, we gotta stop? I'm just, this is just getting good. I'm interested. I'm in. All the way. <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait. And while you're waiting, feel free to leave a five-star review on iTunes. You guys out there don't know it, but you have a little puppy named Chris waiting for you with earnest affection for your reviews. Every day he checks on iTunes like Odysseus's faithful dog waited for him. Give the happiness of Odysseus. Let us know you want to hear the stories of utter bravery that no one else will tell. This is the only show about Iwo Jima on iTunes that I'm aware of. It's us or nothing. Make the right choice. Choose us. Wait, we're going to stay for another podcast? I have to do more? I hope we're not out of beer. (laughs) Well, I'll check the fridge. I know we never run out of beer around here at Battlecast. Thanks, friends. That's another podcast episode in the book. 
Please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And you can also visit our website, thebattlecast.com, for additional content. You can also send us an email at battlecast.net. Questions, comments are always appreciated. Look us up on Facebook. We have a page. It gets updated some of the time. <laughs> Chris, you messed up the email, man. It's battlecastnet at gmail.com. That's it. And that's it for me in the North Georgia Bunker. I tell you every month, and I'm going to tell you again, I appreciate you listening to our podcast. I want to thank Power Glove for providing the great music tonight. I love the Power Glove. Check out Power Glove's links on our website. Chris loves it. I also want to give a shout-out to Elias from from Olympia for the five-star review on iTunes. Elias loves the Power Glove. He, lo- he does it, too. Yeah, Elias, you love it. The reviews really help us. And uh, Oh, hey, sharing with a friend on social media is a big thing. If you can do that for us, I'll appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And Chris will appreciate it from the bottom of his receding hairline. (laughs) And to take us out is a contemporary radio report about the raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi. Until next time, I'm Luke, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Up the precipitous side of a 600-foot extinct volcano, so precipitous that it seemed almost vertical, went a platoon of American Marines. Even through a glass, they seemed tiny figures, scrambling skyward against a background of blue. And then a few minutes later, from the thousands of throats upon ships and on land and sea, came the sudden cry, there goes the flag. That was how the stars and stripes went up on the first island of Japan's outer rim of island defenses. It was at 11 o'clock. Friday, February 23rd, 9 o'clock Thursday night, New York. We saw that flag going up halfway on the journey to shore with Lieutenant General Hutton Smith of the United States Marines. It was the high point in a week of hard fighting, fighting which continues and will continue for some days to come.